podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. If you want interesting and entertaining debate on the Premier League and other English leagues, but from a show that doesn't take itself too seriously, then check out The Whistleblowers. It's a weekly football podcast hosted by me. I used to play football, Martin Gritton, uh, stand-up Mark Smith when he can, and music manager Gareth Dobson, who uh, always has plenty of good chat, being a Spurs fan. Um we basically get football writers in to have a chat as well. And we talk about the stories that matter in English football, whether it's on the pitch or off it. It's free to listen to iTunes, Acast, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, or you can download the Whistleblowers app. Follow us on Twitter at Football Podcast. Cheers. Hello, and welcome to Stop Hammer Time. My name's Phil Whelans, and with me this week, as always, Jim Grant. Good evening. Hello, Jim. Everything all Hello. right in lockdown? Yeah, very good. Thanks. Yeah. Your period of quarantine has come to an end. Uh, yes, we're out of uh, isolation, uh, but, but from from isolation into into impending lockdown. Yes. Yes. Yes, that's We've right. Had a week of freedom, basically. Now, what about the uh, what about the person who bought uh, COVID nineteen into your family and infected your family? Are they in a wooden cage, suspended above a fire? <laughs> yes, like a like a. Uh, a heretic in medicine yes. being hoisted into a upper cage. Yes. yes, exactly, exactly. Well, that's good. Uh, I think that, that's the sort of punishment we need to mete out. <laughs> now, joining us on Stop Hammer Time this week are two good friends of the podcast that we've made in the last couple of years, and it's been great to kind of uh, meet them, and, and uh, it's great to be able to fold them into the Stop Hammer Time family. Uh, first of all, we have our good friend Mark Gower. Now, Mark, uh, as well as a West Ham fan, is the uh, the course leader of the Interior Architecture and Design course at the University for the Creative Arts, and that is going to impact on our conversation in this podcast in a way that will become very apparent when it happens, because it'll be happening and you'll you'll know that it's <laughs> happening because it's happening and you'll be able to hear it. So in a way, I've teased it, I've teased a thing that in a sense, there's no suspense at all because it'll start happening and you'll know what it is. So also joining us, as you know, this is a forum for the lively arts. Jim, you'll remember you did a poem last week, didn't you? I did, yeah. Yep. Very well received poem about Mikhail Antonio. And uh, we, we've embraced each arm of the uh, the lively arts and especially the novel writing uh, arm of the, well, in fact, the literary arm of the of the uh, lively arts. We, we've, uh, we've had Rob Banks on, Brian Williams, Pete May, John Fordham, John Crace. And tonight uh, we welcome another author uh, who has written a book which has points of contact with West Ham United. It is uh, uh, author of recently published novel, The Iron Circle, Alex Montague. Hello, Alex. Hello, hello, hello. How's your very lockdown? Keen to be... All right. Oh, sorry. How's your lockdown? All right. Uh, I can't say it's the funniest thing I've ever gone through, but you know, just trying to drag through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what West Ham have come good. So, um, that's a bit more surreal than staying indoors for seven yes. months. But yeah. Um, yes, yes. As a result, I got writing really. Yes. Yes. So uh, yeah. So. Um, uh, before we start, uh, I came across a, uh, a match report of the Liverpool game at the weekend. Don't ask me where I found it or how I came by it, but uh, let me read it to you. Uh, 
Liverpool uh, ran out 2-1 winners against West Ham at the weekend. After the Londoners went ahead in the 10th minute, Liverpool striker Mo Salah won a penalty by lying about an assault he had been subjected to in the penalty area. In mime, he described an attack which it was later established never occurred that left him lying on the ground screaming in pain. It all happened so fast, he mimed. I was definitely about to score a goal when I was savagely beaten with what felt like a candlestick or some lead piping (laughs) or an in the conservatory. I feared for my life and I worry that the attack was racially motivated. Later, he dedicated the mime to that weekend's recently fallen World Cup hero. I am proud to dedicate my penalty goal, which was scant consolation for the fact that I am now afraid to leave the house to buy some milk or a Ferrari, to that great footballer, Noddy Styles. I am sure Noddy is looking down at me, proud that I honour his legacy, Salah continued. As the ground began shaking, the stadium lights flashed on and off, and Ouija boards across the country spelt C-H-E-A-T. Although I wasn't born, continued Salah, when Great Britain won the World Cup in 1969, I know how much the names Moore, Hurst, Lennon, Aldrin, Manson and Thatcher mean to English people. And I am proud to pay tribute to Noddy with my acrobatic penalty. West Ham faced Fulham next, whilst Liverpool travelled to Manchester City, where Salah will try to frame Kevin De Bruyne for possession of indecent images. Well, that's the uh, that's the that's the match report that I found. Uh, uh, that, yeah, very accurate. That was spot on. Do you feel that that summed up the spirit of the game? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely spot on. <laughs> it's, it's yeah, funny, yeah. You, I mean, it's funny that you start with report because with that game, sort of that face value, a bit of a game of contradictions, really, because it looked like Salah just sort of cut through us like butter, which did not happen. No, and it's and actually on a bit of a down, I think it slightly flattered four nails, but anyway, maybe get into that. Yeah, yeah. So what do we? Um, but your report, we... your Phil, your report focused on Salah's uh, reaction, but I think the key reaction to that goal was Arthur's. I think yeah. it was Arthur's reaction that actually gave that pen. I think if he would have, because he he just demonstrated that Salah did this ridiculous dive instead of, if he would have just carried on and played and then took the ball up like he does, brilliantly with speed, I don't think uh, Kevin Friend would have got that pen. Well, yeah, yeah. Arthur's, um, sorry, Arthur's obviously very shy in the penalty area. I think that sort of Moyes has worked out that's the problem. And where he sort of shines is, you know, sort of wing to attack. Which yeah. Moyes has realised twice now, um, to his slight credit. So yeah, I think I think his sort of look to the referee wasn't, oh, you've caught me. You know, it was sort of, see the guy sort of back from yeah, onto the floor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think it was Almost naive. Look of innocence. It was, it yeah. was naive, naive. From, yeah. from, from Masuaku. But the big problem here is VAR. Because I, I don't blame necessarily the referee on the pitch at the time for, for, for giving that, you know, he was conned um, and he's given, you know, there, there was contact, as they say, and, and he's, he's, he's given the penalty. When it was looked at carefully in slow motion, it was clear that the contact 
you know, the leg that Masuoka made contact with, uh, mm. Salah then puts back down on the ground and uses a, as a launch pad to throw himself <laughs> onto the ground. Yeah, so, yeah. Anyone seeing the slow motion replay of it should have said, well, no, that's not that, you know, that was cheating. Uh, yeah. the, the contact mm. was not, you know, the laws of the game say, you know, it's not a non-contact sport. Um, mm. It wasn't. It wasn't. He didn't kick him. He didn't uh, um, try to trip him up. He didn't cause him to fall over in any way. He didn't push him. It wasn't a foul. Yeah, that's what we thought about Salah. Um, what do we think about the performance generally? Uh, uh, how, what do we think about the game? But if, uh, can I just say one more thing about the Salah? Uh, yeah, of course not. Because when you look at when you look at uh, Kevin Friend, when he actually he doesn't give it. When you see Salah do that ridiculous dive, he gives it when Arthur turns round and remonstrates about the ridiculous dive. That's when yeah. he gives it. I think I just ah, oh, I just think uh, as you said, uh, Jim, mm. just wasn't wily enough to mm. uh, just take the ball wise enough, and I think that comes with experience in the box, and he just doesn't. Uh, take the ball and just carry on running. But, and I think, I'm adamant that I think if he would have done that, um, you, yeah, you, you, that you, you might be right, but, you know, we brought, we brought in this video referee to, to correct mistakes and that was a mistake that wasn't corrected. You know, I, I, I'm fed up with this nonsense that if there's contact, you have a right to throw yourself to the floor. Yeah. And, and then that makes it, that turns that contact into a foul. That's yeah. not the law of the game. Um, no. it, yeah. It, yeah, it does seem like they've sort of got a group of people that don't really understand refereeing, even though they're referees. And thought, well, individually, they all make mistakes, so let's put them all together in some room far away. And yeah. surprise, surprise, they all make collective mistakes. So, uh, yeah. I think Graham Phoenix mentioned that, didn't he? He said that from a distance, if you're a player, you see that that's not a foul. You can tell it's not a foul. Yeah. And so I think it's it's the people in charge. So what they're saying is the people in charge of our. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, and it was a shame. Uh, we scored a you know we scored a good goal to go into the lead. And uh, I mean you know it that they it was gonna it was gonna happen at some point. We're not gonna just draw or beat uh, the teams better than us in the division. So we we before we went into this game, I think we accepted that it was a bit of a free hit, and we did lose it very narrowly. Um, so um, you know we can't be too downhearted about it. What do we think of the game no. in general? No. Well, I agree with you about not being too downhearted, but I, at the same time, felt that we were more defensive in this game than we than we were in the games against Spurs and Manchester City, and and less adventure, less had less ambition, I think. Um, yeah. And when we did go forward, we looked dangerous. I thought we hmm. we yeah, threatened their goal. I, I just felt hmm. we didn't we didn't get the ball forward enough, um, and we're we're deeper. We defended deeper than we have done against um, perhaps we were worried the way we got caught in the first 15 minutes against Spurs but um, I felt you know with a, with a bit more get up and go, a bit more adventure we might have, we might have got more out of that. Do you think we were a little yeah. bit sort of, I mean you know they've got 
their fullbacks are really good, aren't they? Uh, yeah. Robinson and Trent Alexander-Arnold. And I, I think, you know, getting worried about sort of being caught out on the flanks, yeah. that might have been a concern. Yes, I think so. And it meant that we, we played very much with a back five for a lot of the game, didn't we? And that, that yeah. meant that, you know, when Arthur did get forward, he was a threat, wasn't he? You know, yeah. that, that the ball yeah, in that led yeah. to the goal, you know, was a, a good example. And um, I think we made it too easy for them. I, I mean, we talk, we, um, no doubt we'll get on to talk about Haller in a minute, but um, I, I think the, we did miss Antonio. There's no question. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But um, what's interesting, uh, I think for the, the Liverpool game and the Man City, when we're at 1-1, I, and it feels odd to say it, but I, I, always, there was, I always feel like op- quite optimistic. Like Man City, I know we had a back against the wall and then with Liverpool. I always think we were a threat when we attack. And I always think we've got a goal. We've got a goal in us. Yeah. So that optimism mm. and that's bizarre when you think we're at Anfield playing Liverpool, mm. who they won the league at a romp uh, mm. last season. But we're still at one-one. We're not thinking about. Um, well, I'm not thinking about. Well, Edward, maybe other things. But I'm thinking we could get this. We could still win this two-one. Yeah, I wonder about those, you know, that, that thing about those big teams, uh, especially when they're on a sort of good run or something, they just find a way. They keep winning these games with a chatty last-minute goal and stuff. And I wonder whether that's psychology or whether it's, you know, match officials or something want the, you know, slightly want this narrative that they want this team to sort of win the division. Um, you know, um, it's interesting. I mean, you know, they're... they're, they're at the end of the day, they are a higher league position than we are and have better players. And I I wonder mm. if, you know, like that sort of plucky underdog thing, because I agree with you, you know, when you're 1-1 quite late in the game against Manchester City or Liverpool, you think, well, you know, there's two teams in this. But quite often we, you know, we do weather a storm and maybe that is because the other team is sort of just better than us, you know. Mm. Well, they had quality the off the bench, part. didn't they? Yeah. Sorry? Yeah. yeah, they do, yeah. But, that's, I mean, that's the, sorry, that's the point is that they have stamina and teams have stamina either through having players that can last 100 minutes or a lot of options on the bench. Yeah. Obviously, that's where we're a bit wobbly. Yeah. I mean, Shakiri is, you know, like there were stories of him uh, possibly being on his way out of the club because he doesn't get much game time. And in a way, you know, Liverpool are a little bit like you know, Chelsea were a few years ago or people said about Manchester City a few years ago, sometimes players go there uh, who were regular starters in their club, get snapped up by a big team and don't get many starts. You know, in a sense, Shakiri, I know he came along while Lalana was still there, but, you know, he's a bit like the new Lalana. Lalana played every week mm. in Southampton and, mm. um, you know, was only in cup competitions for Liverpool. And Shakiri, you know... You get a player that kind of comes off the bench for one of those big teams. You know, they brought on Kevin De Bruyne against us. And these players are good players because they're ready to go. They come on the pitch, they get the pace of the game, and they, Mm. they, they just... That's why they cost, you know tens of millions, is they're ready to go. They slot straight in and do that. We don't have strength of depth to be able to do that, I don't think. You know, the best we can hope is sort of like for like, whereas in a way, Shakiri and Jota, just because of tired legs, was like an active 
improvement, not necessarily that they were better than the players they replaced, but mm-hmm. they, you know, they are very good and they're also fresh. I, I think I think Jota is exceptional, and I think he's, you know, Firmino has got to be watching his back in in that lineup because he did nothing for most of the game, and Jota yes. did more when he came on, you know, than, yeah. than Firmino had done the match. You know, having said that. You know, um, if Mahn is not standing in the way, Fabianski could clearly see his run and react to it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think the second goal yeah. oh, totally, shouldn't have yeah. stood either. No, um, no, no I, I totally agree. I think it's offside. And I mean, it, the laws of the game, again, say that you're offside if you're in a position where you clearly obstruct the opponent's line of vision. Yeah. And he did. Totally. <laughs> it, it, it was as if he held the door open for Jota just to come through. He's rushing to the toilet and as if he was just holding the door open to yeah. let him in. Just step aside and Definitely. let him through. Yeah. And the first instinct was, that's not a goal. Yeah. And well, it's you, so hard. You can't defend. You can't defend. It's so difficult to defend like that. Because at that point, I think there was three players offside when the ball yeah. was actually played through and Jota yeah. ran through on yeah. it. But Marnie is and it came right in the centre of the goal. Right in front of it and just steps steps aside and let the ball come through and Jota then it's quite an easy finish. Yeah. And your, your, your concern is that if the if if both those decisions the boot have been on the other foot, yeah. um then um then you could imagine them going against us. There was they? a I wonder I mean, if they, sorry. I wonder if it is a, a genuine sort of Klopp tactic because, you know, there was. I went to a game, I think it was an Anfield game where we lost 4 0, and there was, I think there were goals either side of half time. One of them, I think, was marginally offside, and it might have been before VAR, uh, but the other one stood. But basically, every single player in the move was offside. It's just that it was kept, kept kept getting played back to the player that was least offside, and you know it's really difficult to, you know, defenders can't like form a line and push up if there's already mm. players closer to the goalkeeper than them. Mm. It's because this thing yeah. about active and non-active, you know, there, mm. there, there was there was extraordinary goal, and, and our defence as did we in the crowd, just stood and watched this goal unfold mm. because everybody involved in it was offside the entire time. But what happened was it it got played backwards and then someone ran further, you know, from an onside position, you know, into an off, you know, like, they're all not active. So I think Milner put the final cross in to someone who was also in an offside position but then was behind the ball. Mm. Do you know what I mean? You're right. If you if you go back to the laws of offside, that's what it was to stop. It was to stop players just hanging around by the goalkeeper, yeah, and waiting for the ball to be hoofed up um, and run through on goal. So essentially, it's gone mad. So yeah. it's not stopping that anymore, and we're looking at. Tiny little lines of seeing if the shoulder or an yes, arm exactly. that's very is offside. Yeah, that's very yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. When there's well, there three players one... where you can go, they're clearly offside. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was one of these sort of graphics that showed Fabianski's sort of point of vision, sort of angle of trajectory or whatever. And yeah, Mane's sort of blocking exactly what's happening behind yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Jota turns up like you know, like a 
like a kamikaze pilot coming out of the sun, doesn't he? I mean, mm. you, you've got no chance to yeah. try and get across. No. He could have come out. He might have been, you know, he probably wouldn't have saved it, but that's not the point. I mean, um, mm. you think back to that game against um, uh, Chelsea uh, in at the, you know, in the end of the last season, as it were. Yeah. It sort of feel like it, does it? Um, but uh, uh, Antonio was literally lying prone on the ground, clearly not in uh, the way of um, yeah. Pepper or whatever it was, yeah. seeing the ball. And that was disallowed. That, that was Suchet's yeah. goal, wasn't it? That was disallowed. Um, it's consistency, isn't it? Either, either somebody who's directly in front of the goalkeeper is in their line of vision yeah. and therefore seeking to gain advantage and then beat them, or, or not. You can't mm. sort of... <laughs> Cut. I mean that—that's the law. And you wonder if those decisions—and you wonder if those decisions do favour the big teams. It's like, oh, you know, when, do. yeah, when um, Liverpool were at the Thunderdome a couple of seasons ago. Do you remember they scored a goal that where Milner was miles offside? In oh the yeah. Yeah, 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 And yeah. Uh, that yeah. goal stood, and then I think it ended up one all, didn't it? Um, or did yeah. they narrowly win it? But we should have won that game because they had a fucking yeah. goal miles offside. And Klopp at the end had the audacity to say, when the referee realised his decision, uh, that um, uh, that worked against us. Yeah. So the fact that the referee <laughs> gave them a goal, Klopp said, put them at a disadvantage. Uh, <laughs> I that think really, that really isn't how football's played. Goals no. are advantageous to you. I think I think the brouhaha around Pickford and Van Dyke and the media storm about that always meant we were going to get very little from the officials in this in this game. Mm. Um, that reminiscent of the ways in which you know, kind of Ferguson would make a big noise about things prior to a game, and the referee would then be already had their kind of sort of. Um, card marked really and I think it's the same sort of thing and Klopp has come out and said uh, has defended Salah said he didn't dive he's got a horrible bruise where he you know it's just that that aspect of it is kind of shameful really isn't it yeah Yeah. we don't want a game people don't I'm sure even neutrals don't don't want a game where uh, players cheat and get result you know get win games because they're cheated yeah. If that was my daughter doing that, I straight after the game I would say, Look, you don't yeah. do that. Don't do yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. Um so to, what about our you know, what do we think about our attacking threat in that game? We scored quite a good goal in the early part of the game. Uh, you know, had a few more efforts, but um what do we think in general? I suppose we're coming on to uh Alaire now. Well, well. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Um, well, I thought the goal was great. Well, I thought the finish was brilliant. The, yeah, I think Sunil said he stuffed it, but he passed it. Yeah, uh, absolutely brilliant goal. He passed it into the goal. Absolutely, <coughs> Carragher on the he was going. Oh, he scuffed the shot, but it's oh, it's God. beautifully placed. It's a really well mm. taken goal. Um, in the only yeah. place it could go and and actually beat the goalkeeper to score. You know, mm. so. Yeah. Well, the thing, the thing, the thing with Pablo Fornells is that um, I mean, what you get from him is this Bambi, Bambi-esque excitement, sort of wide-eyed, keen to play, play for the shirt, which is great, which we love. But it does, we've used the word naivety, so let's use it again. He does have a bit of naivety. I mean, there was two times I think where he mm. basically did the really wrong decision when you had Jared Bowen 
in just the most yeah. sweetest perfect <clears throat> excuse me yeah. sweetest perfect spot and twice and you know i'm watching one of these streams i'll, I'll have myself in um but it's just, the narrative is old bowen's had a stinker you think well if that's true that has come from one player but that player has scored a good goal so you kind of had the heads and tails in one game of of four nails really yeah yeah, well, I thought he. I thought he was good, though. I thought he had a good. I, I mean, yeah, yes, I he did, could have. Yeah. He could have slipped Bowen in. Bowen probably ran a channel that was too close to him. Um, yeah. I, I, mean, I, you know, yeah, it was. A, he should have part. He should have uh, put Bowen in. No question. But uh, his energy. Uh, yeah. And yeah. No, he does have that. His, his willingness to move the ball quick. I mean, both of them. I think both of them. Um, have, have turned us around. Suchek as well, but those yeah. two um, have really made the difference to us as an attacking force and threat. Mm. We have pace, energy, the way he closes people down. You know, um, I think is terrific. No, oh, it's great. And I think I think the issue is that some people might have with four nails is when he came, we weren't expecting. I think people were expecting him to be a Lanzini. Yeah. And he's not that. He just works. He works really hard. And I love that, um, Alex, that you were saying, that sort of that in, in puppy dog sort of enthusiasm. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I, do, I love I that smile. And when you see Suchek and when Antonio's playing and when they celebrate, and that like, it does feel like there's a real sort of camaraderie with the this particular group of players. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that Fornells, uh, you know, will will develop the more game time he gets because he is still quite young. Um, but one yeah. thing that I think the, you know, yeah. uh, really good players have, um, you know, Cristiano, Cristiano Ronaldo is a very good example, is that they work really hard. People sort of, there's a notion that they're fancy Dan's, but in fact, um, if, if, you know, if that means they're a fancy Dan, then being a fancy Dan often involves working very hard. Ronaldo, you've got to be open to get the ball to score a goal. And in order to do that, you have to run about. And Ronaldo does run about. You know, these guys, you know, these absolutely top of their game guys, you know, from Eusebio and Pelé onwards, work hard. And that's why they're really good. And that's why they have that money. You do get, you know, you do get finishers, um, you know, who, who, you know, are sort of goal hangers and perhaps don't work that hard. But the work they're doing is kind of mental work, is finding the right position. Sheringham being a good example of that, and Lineker. Mm, yeah. You, neither uh, of those guys, you know, you, you sort of think of putting in last-ditch tackles or getting right. back and stuff, but they played in a different game. But, yeah. you know, they're mm. going to get you goals because they're fucking good finishers, you know. Yeah. Ashton. I, th I think if, if that's yeah. what Ashton. it takes... If that's what it takes to get a good player, then I, f I think maybe segue into or make, think, um, make us think about Alain because yes, yes, he's yeah. we're sympathetic and you know they use him enough to sell us t-shirts and whatnot. But it does reach a point where we think he. I mean, he looks like he just doesn't know what to do. You know, first day on a job, yeah. standing around looking for favors. This is top flight sunshine. I mean, yeah. he's obviously a good player, but. It seems a bit sort of charitable. I mean, you, let's be a bit cut front. Yeah, I think that's right. It's you know because of his demeanour, it's easy for people to sort of, in a way, say that he's um, you know lazy. First and foremost, he's sort of lazy. But yeah, no, I don't I think, think he's lazy. Right. I, think I think there's confused. a little bit of, little bit of conf you know, yeah, sort of cluelessness, yeah. not really knowing 
where he fits in or how to make it work, you know. Mm. And I think there, I think you're right. I think he does because there was points where I saw Masayaku get the ball out wide, and because we were watching on telly, we can't see the whole of the pitch. But he looks up to hit a pass down the line, but he doesn't do it. And I know because I've watched Hallow and I've seen him. He doesn't run. He doesn't run those lines. He doesn't give you those options. So what happens is Arthur's got to cut back in, and we start again. Mm. Where is he? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not. I don't want to say he doesn't work hard, but I think what Antonio does, and I'm not comparing Hallow to Antonio. They're totally different. But what I think, if I was sitting on the bench, and I can't even walk, but if I'm sitting on the bench and I'm thinking I'm going to come on, what Antonio gives you is a template of what to do and how to, how to perform. So he gives you a template of what to do. And the, the part, that the simplest template is to work hard, work hard and show, try and hold up. Because um, Haller's never going to be able to go over the shoulder, drop the shoulder and turn mm, no. defenders. That's not going to happen. No. So you're going to have to support him. But he's got to give options out wide where we can get, we can release the ball quite quickly from defence. Uh, and I, I don't. Yeah, sorry, Jim. No, no, go on. No, go, go on. Well, I was thinking. I, I it was quite interesting listening to Moyes uh, before the game started, and he said something that I thought was really interesting. I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was about. Well, let's see. Let's let's see how he does. And I'm like, mm. what? We've <laughs> had a week. So Mark Sandel, we were talking at the week. Uh, Mark Sandel made the point that we've had a week now, knowing that Antonio is not playing. So we should know how we need to play to Haller. I just mm. don't think. And then after the uh, Moyes afterwards, I I just don't think he he fancies him. I think his instinct is to play Yarmolenko down the middle but I think he couldn't do that for this game he had to play Haller he could not have uh, could you imagine if he hadn't played Haller for that game and then played yeah. Yarmolenko uh, yeah. through the middle yeah. it would have destroyed him yeah no I think that's right and probably he's got to start him at Fulham against Fulham as well and and, and probably mm. to be fair you know that's the game where we we you know hopefully we, we, we'll we'll see the, the better of him I mean yeah. The thing is, yeah, I think we fully accept that Alair is not a striker who's going to run the channels like a Vardy or um, bully people like a Carroll, even though he's tall. He hasn't got the same physicality. But I think what you were saying was absolutely right. If it was Sheringham or Ashton playing playing that role, they would find space. They would work to, yeah. to receive mm. the ball in space. Yeah. Every time we had the ball, he almost kind of found a Liverpool player to mark him. You know, yes, uh, uh, and also the other. So I think he could have worked harder in that sense. I don't necessarily think it's about laziness necessarily. It's about football now, supposedly, yeah. as much as anything else. But you've got to make yourself available to hold the ball up um, uh, to bring the rest of the team into play. So that was a big reason why we were deep and why we didn't attack as much as we had done in against sort of Spurs and Man City. Yeah. Um, but also, there's not you know. It's, there's no reason why you can't close players down. There's no reason why you can't put pressure yeah. on the ball. And he put no yeah. pressure on the ball. When, when he hasn't mm. got... He just doesn't work at all when we haven't got the ball. Mm. Um, mm. Even Carroll would, would have little moments in a match where he'd run around like a, 
like a madman sort of chasing people down and, get it, and then stop for a long period of time. But with Halle, you don't even get that. And I think no. that that's in the culture of the team. And, you know, you've got to... You've got to come in and recognise that if you want to play and score and get the opportunity to score goals against some of the lesser teams, you've got to put the you've got to put that that shift in uh, when you haven't got the ball. Uh, well, that's that template Antonio gives, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's uh, carry on with this after this message. If you want an e-bike that doesn't look like it's made for the shopping precinct, something that's less Mr Bean and more Steve McQueen, check out the range of bikes from London-based Cooler King. From dope 250-watt city bikes to Harley Bobber-inspired 750-watt beasts that can tear your face off while leaving your smile intact. Cooler Kings are made in limited numbers, yet highly affordable. Check them out now on the web at cooler.bike or find them on Instagram with hashtag CoolerKingBike. Cooler.bike. E-bikes that are cool AF. Welcome back. Uh, yes, so so Jim, you, you think that probably Halea will start against uh, Fulham. Uh, well, so, don't you think that would be fair? I mean, I, yeah. I mean, you know, um, we, we're going to have more of the ball. One would hope. Um, you know, I think, I think he might, uh, he might. He's been scoring goals this season against mm, yeah. uh, lesser, as it were, opposition. So yeah. um, uh, let's give him a chance. You can, you know, you, surely we all want him to do well. Of course, you know, of course. Yeah, you know, totally, we all want yeah. And clearly, you know, look, you may, I, I think think back. Was it? Was it the Man City game when he was his debut? That going back to last yeah. year, yeah, he was great. Um, yeah. He he looked a he looked as like king of football, didn't he? That, yeah. that game. he yeah. was confident. He yeah. was shooting after people. He was making runs. I think you know it is. We underestimate the psychology mm. of it, and he, he's he's yeah. clearly you know he's he's a, feeling a bit sorry for himself, and and you mm. can't always just pick yourself up and. Uh, turn on a brilliant performance, you know, having been get out of the side. And I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he deserves a chance to, to kind of prove himself, you know. Yeah. And you were right, can't. Jim. He, yeah, you were right. He was doing that right in the tight. He was making the runs. And I think he got demoralised because he wasn't mm. getting the ball. We were going through yeah. an awful period yeah. and he wasn't getting the ball. And yeah. so he sort of gave up making those runs. Yeah. Yeah. And but what's, what's funny now is, um, I mean, if you think about it, what you've got is Pufal, who's not only settled in, but basically shown the other boys how it's done a bit. Yes. Um, You know, him, for the kind of crosses we've seen him put in and for the kind of goals we've seen Allaire do, which usually sort of close, sort of awkward Mm. body contortions. And I mean, you know, it's it's skillful, it's great. So you think, well, having Pufal sort of quickly dashing in and putting in his crosses sort of lands at the spot where Allaire likes to linger, you know, if, if uh, on site, so, so I can't, mm. you know, you'd expect more from them to to link yeah. up. To be honest, yeah, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think Jim's right. I think it's probably, uh, and that's probably how Moyes is, and that's how I sort of got the tone of Moyes' voice. That 
he thinks it's fair. I think it, against Fulham, he will play him. I think he yeah. will. Um, because we were talking about the other options. So it would be Yarmolenko through the middle. Or do you play Bowen through the men- middle and then Ben Rama? You bring Ben Rama in. That feels to me like the most the most obvious um, yeah. switch to make. So you, you're bringing in a bit of pace and creativity, but keeping the energy mm. of Bowen. And um, it means the rest mm. of the team's got to play further up the pitch because obviously Bowen is yeah. going to run channels. He's not going to he's not going to compete for aerial balls and so on. So we're going to have to play yeah. a bit more like you know. But he's he could be. Uh, you know, he could be a Cotty-like figure in a central role. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, uh, that game took place uh, on Halloween, and uh, wouldn't it be convenient if we could find an author uh, to come on this podcast who had written a novel that was connected to the subject of West Ham United and was also a ghost story? Wow. Well, we have one of those here on the podcast. <laughs> it's Alex Montague. Alex, you have written a novel that that has a, a ghost, a ghostly element to it, and is also concerned with the subject of West Ham United. This is like the stars lining up. You're the definitive guest. <laughs> now, I don't want to, um, you know, I'm always conscious of kind of spoilers, so I don't, you know, I, I. Mm. I can describe the book, but it might be better for you to describe it in a way that doesn't give the entire plot away, as I would doubtless do by acting out all the characters in it and just doing the whole thing like an audio book, which would be pointless and badly performed. So, 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 what is it, Alex? Um, it's the book that's the hardest to explain without giving that too much away. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's my worry. I've got it all in front of me, but I I, I feel like I want to sort of keep something back. It's called the Iron Circle. That's worth saying yeah, because yeah. that's a good marketing tool if people know the title of the book. Yeah. <laughs> so and the, the cover's help. great. I love the cover. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, if, if anyone else likes that, it's Sam Edwards' artist. To do a tiny plug. Right. Um, he he does Stadia and if, anyway. Anyway, enough about him. Um, so yeah, it's. So the series is the Iron Circle, um, even though there's only one of them so far. Um, and what these are is they're a, a firm, not in sort of hooligan sense, but a, a support, unofficial supporters club, and a sort of fictitious, um, at least in the time of this book, sort of ITK. So they have a lot of connections within the club, and they yeah. sort of release information through the Iron Circle. Um, and the tale of Harry Thomas. Is so basically World War Two is well on its way, and the last two members of the Iron Circle get um, called up to fight. So our hero, Harry Thomas, um, I'm trying not to give too much of a plot, but mm-hmm. essentially it's about a man that's used a, a very sort of tribal, and very sociable existence. That being taken away, and taken away, and in a sense, football being taken away. And um, just to quickly not give anything away. In return, he sort of gets exposed to um, the darker forces that are around and sort of doesn't have his quote-unquote tribe for protection. So that's the description. But, yeah. Yeah. It's sort of, um, you know, things that bring in elements of the real world uh, and things that do exist to make a kind of fictionalised story. It's a very interesting, um, mm. a very interesting 
idea you know uh, um oh god well peter Ackroyd's book chatterton is about uh, that painting of the poet chatterton but then it's all imagined all the stuff is imagined around these real life events it's very interesting so was it did it start with real events that influenced you or real things that you knew about that influenced you or did you have the story and bring in elements from the real world um there- yeah, I mean, partly there's a lot of, I mean, partly it's almost personal romanticism to write it, even though I do sort of really like how it's come out generally. Um, it's it's a lot of sort of my, old, my dad's old family stories as well. Right. So they're from, they're from around sort of Stetney Green Limehouse kind of way, but sort of uh-huh. West Ham, you know, it's, it's hereditary, I'm afraid. Yes. Um, so a lot of sort of stories from there. Um, they're... Um, I guess it doesn't give too much. I mean, there's an injury that takes place, and and it's not too gruesome, but it's it's one that I, I sort of had. Right. And uh, yeah, and yeah, not to be too cr- of a crank, but um, the place where it happens, probably perfectly reasonable. But a lot of sort of strange things happened as well. So right, right. I mean, if anything, it's sort of made for a really nice story. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. peculiar, but brilliant. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so uh, I heartily recommend this. It is The Iron Circle. Uh, where can people get it, Alex? Amazon. Uh, on on Amazon and whatever country in the world you're from, you can purchase it. Um, yeah, and also if you check out Alex Monkey Wolfer on, on the social media. Yeah. Um, yeah, it'll be along there. Yeah, so it'll be in this description of the podcast, Alex Montague. Excellent. It's excellent. Very good. Very good. Um, so... Um, one of the characters in it is an architect, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. Which is extraordinary. This is, an, this is almost... It's all a, falling into place. It's, <laughs> it's almost a spooky... This is almost a kind of spooky, um, you know, sting-in-the-tail type story in its own right. The fact that uh, we have a lecturer in architecture, a person who's written a book... Um, uh, in which one of the characters is an architect, and the whole connection is West Ham. It'll be, it's quite possible that the punchline of this will be that one of us has been dead the whole time we've been doing this. <laughs> and he's in fact a ghost. Um, uh, and, you know, and we don't know because we're in lockdown. It could be me. COVID <laughs> may have taken me away about 10 days ago, but my body is sitting in the kitchen at a laptop doing a podcast from <laughs> beyond the grave. Um, now, Mark uh, has, has, well, uh, Mark uh, published an article in uh, um a, uh, a magazine, uh, an architecture magazine, Icon. It is the uh, uh, one of the prime magazines about architecture and design. Um, and the title of this article is How Stadium Architecture Gives Football Teams the Home Advantage. Uh, now, of all the football clubs in the league, one in which uh, a new large stadium plays a big role in that football team's life, uh, we are, of course, that team. And um, so was that part of the reason you um, wrote that article, uh, Mark? Do you know what? It was key, actually. It was key to instigating it again. But um, so unlike writing uh, scares the life out of me. So when I, so this first started when I was studying at the Royal College of Art and uh, studied my MA in architecture and interiors. And we had to write a dissertation. 
And so I had to, I wanted to write about football. And so whatever, I, I, kind, I kind of find that you can tie everything back, even if it's football, back to architecture or um, interiors. I initially, my uh, dissertation supervisor, I proposed to him that I wanted to write about going to, so this was 98 that I was at the Royal College of Art. Right. And I proposed to him that I wanted to go to France the World Cup finals and I was going to buy tickets from touts and analyse the spatial dynamics of how touts work and he wasn't having it. No. So I then, <laughs> no. So I didn't get my trip to France, didn't go to the World Cup finals. So then, but what I started to write about was that football is in constant flux. A football pitch has hidden architecture. So there's spatial patterns, there's spatial patterns and there's spatial relationships. So you have uh, players to player, so I'll be, so you'll be in a position based on where your um, colleague is or where colleague, so I'm in the job, where your teammate is or where an opponent is, but then you, it's playing where the ball is. You're in a position where the ball, and then you're in a, a position uh, to the pitch and where you are on the pitch. Yeah. So what started to instigate this was, exactly as you said, Phil, was the move to uh, the London Stadium. I was asked then to write a piece uh, for this book, which is called Encumbering Research, uh, part of the University for the Creative Arts and Crafts and Design School. And I was like, God, what do I write about? And, then, but it, and it came back down to Antonio. So I think it was something Antonio said that it was about orientation. When they moved, when we moved from Upton Park to uh, the Thunderdome, uh, people couldn't orientate themselves. They weren't aware. Players weren't aware. So yeah. when you get the ball, and it's about those split seconds. So these marginal games are all about split seconds. So when you get the ball, you shouldn't even have to look <clears> around you. You know when you get the ball where exactly you are in the pitch. Well, at the, at the London Stadium, that wasn't apparent. So we were getting sort of run over. And uh, balls were getting sort of kicked along because the pitch, you couldn't see the boundaries of the pitch. Yeah. And mm. I think what's happened, and what's been actually interesting, and this is before lockdown, so the big emphasis on home advantage is crowds. So everyone says it's crowds, not having crowds there. Well, uh, there's some researchers at uh, Reading University did, they analysed six and a half thousand matches in lockdown over the um, English League, so Premier League Championship. They looked at um, Spain and Italy. And what they found was initially at lockdown, there was a drop. There was a steep drop in home advantage. But then as um, after the first two weeks, that settled back down and home advantage then found itself and that prevailed. And yeah. in Italy, home advantage became even more. Yeah, because so, in, in, in the article, Mark, you say yourself that, that, you know, when a player looks up, he sees a, you know, a player in the same colour shirt as him. But also in the background, he sees uh, where an advertising hoarding comes to an end and the tunnel starts, yeah. uh, where the lines are, all that stuff. And um, 
it's a it's like a sort of three-dimensional picture is formed so if you're used to seeing that same background every week from different yeah. positions on the pitch you're able to orientate yourself much more quickly so it's not just about you know uh, the crowd and the crowd being a long way from the pitch it's just where everything is in relation to everything else and if you know that better than the other team it mm. sort of should if you're smart give you an advantage Oh, totally. And it's about that spatial awareness, under improving that spatial awareness. Yeah. Sorry, Jim, is that? Oh, no, sorry. I was going to say, so this is kind of half a question. Just um, So, you know, when they when they installed the claret carpet, our mm. results improved. And one thing more recent that no one's really, that I haven't seen anyone mention, let's just say, is um, they have brought the, uh, you know, the two stands behind the goals closer to the pitch now obviously no one's been there to really sit in them Uh but from what you're saying Mark is for the players both of these things have made them feel more enclosed which obviously has helped with and I I think the installation of the carpet wasn't actually for that purpose was it it was for it was for us it was still trying to make that and that's a really interesting thing about the design of stadium uh, so when, like, so I'll be teaching my students, and the main focus, or is generally always, is the user of the space. That you focus when you design an interior or interior architecture of a space, you focus on the user. That the only place that doesn't happen is with football stadiums. So what they design it for us, they design it for the football fans. So the yeah. Tottenham Stadium was the the cop. So it was a wall of sound. Well, this research from. Um, uh, Reading, sort of blown that out of the water. So what they we we spend all this money on marginal gains, so nutritionists, so psychologists, but actually no one talks to a footballer and says, well, actually, what what's important to you when you're playing in that pitch? Uh, what was what was interesting that I found when I was doing the research? John Beck, so Cambridge City manager, sort of early um, early nineties, renowned for his long ball. He set up, and this is quite basic, but he set up in the four corners, each four corners, these big hoardings called, and they had the big sign called quality on them. All the artist players to do was, as soon as you look up, hit that quality board. And they were, they, he ended up calling them sort of quality passes. Right. And that, that's, pretty, that's pretty crude. Right? It's, pretty, it's a pretty crude. But it could be so much more sophisticated. But how, and what, also, it, it, that astounded me. I was reading about Wayne Rooney. Wayne, Wayne Rooney used to go to the kit man on a Friday and then find out from the kit man what colours the team were going to, the away team, the team they were playing, were going to wear. And right. I was just like, well, hang on, surely during training, because I'm a big fan, like Malcolm Gladwell was like 10,000 hours, practice, practice, and yeah. and part of the teaching is based on sort of situated learning, so where you present knowledge to students in an authentic context, sort of an authentic sort of settings and situations. That should be applied to football, I would have thought. Yeah, I mean, they say, I, I, remember, um, I remember hearing somebody saying about one of the great racing drivers, maybe Schumacher, that they could, what they had that gave them an advantage was a kind of spatial awareness of what's happening in yeah. the whole race. 
which is what they say about road driving anyway. It's like if, you know, if someone's turning right a long way up the road, it's always amazing when about six cars, that seems to take them by surprise and they just stop behind the car that's going right instead of going to the left of that car and keep it going. You know what I mean? And um, it's been said before that great sports people sort of see what's happening in the whole game rather than just their bit. You know, and that sort of architecture of where everybody is in the game, that the you know where mm. everyone in the, the other team is, and everyone in your team with, you know, you yeah. will then take a punt on speculating what's going to happen in the next, yeah. you know, ten or fifteen seconds. So you make a run that sort of then mm. demands that someone gives you the ball. That sort of thing. Yeah. Um, Phil yeah. and I, of course, are, are old enough to remember Upton Park when it was really, really confined you know it was, right, yeah. there was no space they even had to make the kind of goals shallow you know with, with those little stanchions yeah. um, to to kind of to kind of fit the whole pitch in the ground it was as if the kind of someone mm. had built a ground and then tried to squeeze a football yeah. into mm. it and a lot of the time and of course you know those, those and that kind of claustrophobic kind of feel to it um, was it, it, it exacerbated under lights, wasn't it? When, when yeah. you know, the yeah. kind of sky went and it was just yeah. this really intense, like a kind of theatre in the round, you know. Yeah. Um, mm. And we often just assume that, um, you know, you put down the fact that West Ham could turn anyone over under lights at Upton Park um, yeah. to the fact that the crowd got up. But I suppose, you know, you would argue that that's partly to do with the, the, the kind of the the intense architecture of the ground as much as yeah. um the kind of atmosphere as such or, or the atmosphere was yeah. part and parcel of it not easy to yeah. draw a line where one begins and the other ends i used to love that time when you could tell any instantly from the highlights or a picture which ground it was because of the goals yeah and the goals were all different yeah. different grounds yeah and now they're they're just kind of they're they're one size. Obviously, they are one size, but they're 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 one design, aren't they? I remember yes, Julian Dick yeah. saying that when he came to Upton Park with Birmingham, um, you know, and was the ticket run side, he thought this is extraordinary, and thought, yeah, I'd quite like to come and play here. You know, <laughs> just like having the crowd just like you know three feet away from your shoulder you know was uh mm. was just a sort of bizarre sensation he said um and you know probably unlike any other ground yeah yeah, so, yeah you could um, imagine it disorientating for players to go from upton park to that to that stadium yeah, yeah. must have been disorientating oh. but, but then you think when you go to another stadium yeah it is all of a sudden that orientation. Just thinking, right? Okay, I'm not at Upton, so let's pretend we're back at Upton Park. Uh, right, I'm not at Upton Park at the moment. I'm at. Oh, right. Let's pretend now we're at the Thunderdome. Right, man, but it is totally different, and that spatial awareness you can't. It takes time, and so that that fraction of a second where you're taking down the ball before actually when you're out from park when that ball's coming to you and you're Julian Dix you know exactly where you are you know how close you are to the touchline you don't have to look at the touchline because you can see the hoarding Uh, Uh, or you can hear someone shout you know that same person that's always shouting at you all the time that person's there and so they're those marginal gains that it's about saving time uh, sort of memory time, quick 
quick thinking mm. time that you don't yeah. have to look. Whereas when you're playing away, or if you're a new player at the club, actually you've got to get used to that a little bit. So Soufal actually doing quite well because he's actually hit the floor mm. running. So some there's lots of things that blow, uh, sort of uh, might sort of talk against this, but. Um, I think it just makes common sense. And also when yeah. you start to move a player out of position, so like you'll chunk information. So you'll be playing, so Antonio again, when, so playing right midfield, there's certain spatial patterns that you become familiar with. So you've got your, so you've got forward up front, you've got your centre midfielder, you've got the right back behind you. You become aware of those relationships and those spatial uh, relationships. But also you start to chunk uh, spatial patterns that happen all the time. So you yeah. move to right back, those spatial patterns are totally different. So uh, you've got what, to get used. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So your suggestion of uh, to Halair, perhaps improving Halair's performance by building a small row of cottages uh, <laughs> in, the, in the ground, I think is a good one. I may well improve Bungalows. Yeah, it bungalows because then it will make yeah, him yeah. feel even bigger. Make him feel even bigger. Um, we're going to have to sort of uh, move on uh, to talking about the uh, Fulham game at the weekend. Um, so as we, I mean, we've talked about it a little bit, and we th- think he'll probably go with Hilaire again. Probably go with the same team again, much as he can. Um, do we? Uh, they've just got a win under their belts, yes. so uh, they will be a little bit buoyant. Um, what do we think? I think we're going to try that team again and it's not going to work and I predict a nil-nil draw. Nil-nil draw? Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. It's been a while. Who's paying, who's paying 14 95 for that? Yeah, yeah. It's the first uh, pay-per-view, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mark, what do you think? Oh, I think we win. Um, and then this is coming from, I think, 3-1... Excellent, excellent, mm. Jim. Well, I think um, I think we look we score goals, don't we? We've been, it's been a while since we we haven't scored. We look like we're going to score goals. Um, I don't think they'll. They've got some decent players for them. I, I, I think they might be in a slightly false position, but they're traditionally good opponents for us, aren't they? I mean, I, yeah. I, I think I don't think it'll be the you know the thrashing that a lot of people seem to be expecting. And demanding, but I think we'll win it by the odd goal. So I'm going to go uh, for a two-one win. By the way, my two-one defeat was again spot on. Uh, you'll know that's yeah, two yeah. out of three now. Yes, yes, same, yes. Same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mystic Meg, you know. Just I, I, I can't remember my prediction, but I imagine the number of goals was correct. Uh, uh, you no, know, I think you predicted <laughs> six goals or something ridiculous. Right. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, well, that's that's not correct. That was incorrect. Um, yes. Now, yes. I, I mean, I'm sort of with Alex with the kind of it could be, uh, it could end, you know, ultimately underwhelm uh, and be like a nil-nil. Uh, you know. So uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, what did you say, Jim? I said two-one. I think we'll win. One-nil. One-nil to the one-nil to the Hammers. I'm going to say. Yeah. Um, what an optimistic bunch you lot are. I know. No. Relentless. I say. Well, we probably uh, we better sort of wrap uh, wrap this up. Um, 
So this has been uh, Stop Hammer Time. Do uh, seek out um, The Iron Circle by Alex Montague uh, from, uh, you can get it on Amazon and uh, or wherever you buy your books, but probably Amazon. And uh, <laughs> uh, um, uh, you can find a Mark's article on, on the Icon website as well as, uh, um, I th- well, I don't know if it's in magazine form. It's a I, it, well, there's a, there's a, on my pinned tweet, you can read the, so if you go onto my Twitter account, which is at Mark S. Gower, you can, um, it's on my pinned tweet and you can read the article there. And it's also the, that's an excerpt. So you can read the full chapter in a book, oh. which you can buy for £10. Oh, excellent. What's that book called? It's, encom- it's called Encompassing Research. So there's not, it's not all football. So it's other academics in the School of Crafts and Design. So there's jewellery designers, product designers, uh, talking about, writing about other really interesting stuff. This could be the artiest stop hammer time we've ever had. <laughs> uh, I think we should try and get an interpretive dancer on next week. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and perhaps um, circus skills, a trapeze artist, maybe, next week. Excellent. Well, anyway, um, we'd better leave you. Uh, my name is Phil Whelans. This has been Stop Hammer Time. This week I've been joined by Jim Grant. Cheerio. Alex Montague. Toodaloo. And Mark Gower. Come on, you irons. Goodbye. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wait for your goodbye. Come on, you. Um, <laughs> oh, we fucked the ending up. <laughs> <laughs>